Today on episode number 333 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Eloise Stevens talks about fostering curiosity in STEM and beyond. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stehoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today's guest, Dr. Eloise Stevens, was originally born and raised in France, and she moved to the UK to study physics and astronomy at the University of Sheffield. After working as a support astronomer at the Isaac Newton Group in La Palma for a year, she obtained her Master's of Physics in 2015. She subsequently started a PhD studying the 3D shape of core collapse supernovae and earned her title in spring 2019. In July of that year, she joined the University of Auckland as a research fellow to research the evolution of massive stars to better understand how they die and produce supernovae and kilonovae. She started her public outreach work, which you'll hear a lot about in this episode during her doctoral studies in early 2016, and she has not stopped since. Eloise, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Hi, Bernie. Thanks so much for having me. I want to tell you how we met. Only it's not going to be how we met, but it's going to be (laughs) how I feel like I came to know you. And I know you know that feeling where you just feel like you know someone even though they don't know you back. So can I tell you how we met? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to hear that. And please feel free to fill in the details because I think you'll remember them better than me. But there was a young woman. I saw her video, but it was because you had sort of reposted it, remixed it. Mm. And she is putting on her makeup. And I I kind of instantly figured out what was going on where sometimes they'll do what, what they want to appear to look like a makeup tutorial, but then they're actually really talking about things of substance, by the way. Side note, makeup's very crucial, but <laughs> I, don't, I don't really get a lot out of makeup tutorials, but I was instantly captivated by this young woman. And she's saying things, and, and again, feel free to jump in where I miss it. She's saying like, I just don't understand, you know, why back then, back in the day, did they even need, was it calculus? What? Yeah, she was asking, where does maths come, come from, basically? Yeah. And yes, I say maths, not math, because <laughs> yes. England and all of that. <laughs> But yeah, she was asking, you know, how did they make maths? She was like, maths doesn't feel real. Like she, she said, I know it's real because it works and people use it, but I just don't know how it has come to be. And she was asking very, very good questions. How did these people from 2000, 3000, 5000 years ago come up with all of this seemingly out of thin air because she was never taught any of that stuff? And then that's kind of where you come in. Yeah, so the the whole of TikTok and Twitter, mostly Twitter, started making fun of her, being like, oh, I don't understand how people can be so stupid. Because the questions she was, she was asking were seemingly very basic, like, where does math come from? How does it exist? How, how do you know that it works, that it is real? How do you know? 
And it's a very fundamental question that's actually very difficult to answer. Like some of the most fundamental questions that you can ask are some of the hardest to actually answer and explain in a concise way. I guarantee you that none of these people could answer this woman. I guarantee you they had no idea. They just thought these are such basic questions that, you know, as a young woman, as a young adult, you should be past asking yourself these questions. And that's the problem. Because asking yourself these basic questions is what makes you a scientist. That's what scientists are. People who ask questions that others will take for granted is, is weird. And so, yes, that's, that's why it captivated our whole community. And, uh, and I felt like I wanted to have answered some of her questions because she made a, a follow-up video defining some of the questions a bit more. This is not a topic I'm interested in, but something about what you did brought me in and I can't be alone in that because that makes me so happy. (laughs) And the big theme that I want to explore with you today has to do with curiosity, because what you seem to have a very, very wonderful ability to do is to generate curiosity where it does not exist. So how do you think about doing that? Because you you teach college classes. You also teach the the universe (laughs) through lots of different social media. And we'll get more into how you approach that. But how do you think about your role as an educator and what it has to do with trying to generate curiosity in other people? So that's a very interesting uh, thing. And I think what I always tell people when they want to go into Psycom is think of yourself as an entertainer first. And I know that it's not something, it's, it might be controversial, it's something that people might not understand, but science at that level, it's not science that people need in their everyday life. It's not something that people need to learn. So it's entirely for leisure. And how do you make something interesting like that? You entertain people, you wow them, you show them crazy things, you tell them about the extremes of the universe. And you captivate them with the things that are fun, basically. That's the way that I see it, is science at that level is entertainment because learning is fun. And that's something that people forget or just don't get a taste of with the school system that we have. Learning is always painful. Learning makes you feel like a failure. Learning takes time and is very difficult. And there are aspects of learning and problem solving that, of course, (laughs) are painful and difficult and, and time consuming. But if you're just given some really cool information, it can just be for fun. You, you don't have to do the 20 years of school that I did to, do, <laughs> to read all of these lengthy papers and everything. I do that hard work. I've done that hard work. And then I'm going to give you the fun stuff because it's 3 a.m. on a Tuesday. You've got insomnia. You're sad because we're all sad. It's the middle of the pandemic and you just want some fun space facts. And here you have them. So it's not trying to teach people as many things as possible in as much detail as possible. You can't do that. That's a bit dull or or just you'll give them too much information that is either not interesting or they can't process in the small amount of time and attention that they can give you. So if you see yourself as an entertainer first through the medium of science, then you've got a good good start to be a science communicator. I was on Twitter a couple of days ago and Sarah Rose Kavanaugh posted I was not expecting this to happen. And of course, I instantly like, okay, okay, what is she talking about? And I go through. 
And it's a woman and she's talking about the brain, the different regions of the brain or that kind of thing. So she starts out talking. I'm going to post a link to this in the show notes because I can't can't do it justice and I'm ruining the ending now. I I just have to say it. I have to say it. She starts cutting her hair. Mm -hmm. Then she starts shaving her entire head. Someone else comes into view and starts drawing with presumably i mean it, i mean it wasn't a permanent marker but it looked pretty pretty uh concrete there on her bald head and then they start coloring in the different things and things like that so i'm thinking about as you're talking that one of the challenges people might have about viewing their role like this is once you've shaved your head you've kind of gone like is is what you're describing in your pedagogical view a means to an end so you sort of earn the right once you have their attention to kind of walk through some more of the like do you have to be this entertaining 100 percent of the time i guess is what i'm trying to ask so it, it depends on what audience you're trying to reach and yeah teach so the people who already have an interest and you were asking about the people that don't necessarily have yeah. an interest in science and that's where that kind of came from so and my content kind of spans different areas so there are more approachable pieces of content that are very generic and have like more quote-unquote clickbaity it's not clickbait but it has a clickbait format uh title but there's also content that's about just brand wolves and brand wolves don't sound very appealing if you're not someone who's already interested in space and you don't know what a brand wolf is you might not be interested in watching that video and that's fine but the whole bunch of followers who are here for my space content because they really want space content, they will watch it. But it's just, if you're looking at getting the attention of someone who's not necessarily interested in science, yes, you have to. Mm-hmm. You have to be very entertaining. You have to. Because we live in a world where people's attention is currency. That's just the way it is. So yes, you need to grab their attention and deserve to give them the piece of knowledge that you want to give them by giving them something else that they usually seek. You know, they don't seek your science content, but they seek entertainment on the internet. So you give them the entertainment and you give them the science, you slip them the science uh, (laughs) just at the same time. And maybe you capture their attention for longer, you know, if you've sparked that curiosity. But uh, that's kind of the name of the game. I know that this can be such a struggle for people because they... I'm going to sound really condescending. They've been taking themselves seriously for a very long time. They've been taking their discipline seriously. Academia seems to, you know, we're, we're just supposed to all be very, very serious. And and mm-hmm. people really do get very passionate about their disciplines. They've been studying it for years. So I'm wondering if we can shrink down to some tangible ways how could you be a little bit more entertaining? Because <laughs> we're probably not going to start out by shaving our heads or being as good as you are. And part of what I see you doing is breaking some norms. So how could we break some norms in some smaller ways just to start to get used to this playful nature of the unexpected, of the entertainment that you describe? Can you think of some approaches we could shrink it down? I think because everyone is so different in their individuality i would say just if you want to get into psychom and you're worried about not being entertaining enough just at this point don't worry just do the thing mm-hmm. just do the thing and practice and find what makes you happy what makes you laugh what you would find interesting often times I, I i think about what would i have wanted to see and watch when i was 14 
that's kind of what I, I, I think about. What would, have, what would have captured my attention when I was interested in space but didn't know about it? Practice really, ma- really makes, quote unquote, perfect. It doesn't make you perfect, but, uh, but you get the gist. And letting loose, in a sense. And, oh, okay, I have one big tip that has just come to mind. One of the biggest fear, especially early career researchers, is that when they're trying to, when they're doing outreach and doing that kind of stuff, they're worried that they're, if they break things down too much or if they don't use jargon, they're not going to sound clever. Mm. They're not going to sound like they know what they're talking about. And I understand that can be a fear if you don't look like a scientist, if you look young, if you're a woman, mm-hmm. uh, if you're typically not in the circles, if you're a person of, of color, if you're indigenous and, you're, and people just don't associate your image with that of a scientist. But that being said, I think the biggest piece of advice I can give someone is good outreach doesn't make you sound clever. It makes the audience feel smart. That's your goal. But you shouldn't let that fear of uh, I'm not going to sound like a scientist or I'm not going to sound like I know what I'm doing get in the way of explaining the concepts to your audience and, and making it accessible. In terms of that fear that we won't be taken seriously, that's a, sort of allowing it to shape us other than what a teacher is, because a teacher isn't really worried about what other people are thinking. They're worried about helping their students learn. And you, yeah. yeah, you've sort of divided our students up into sort of people who have yet to have their curiosity ignited and those mm-hmm. who have and those who have yet. Unfortunately, so many of our systems and structures are built up to make them feel alienated that we got to do something to bring them back in. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's one of the things that motivates me as a science communicator because I was quite privileged to be in a decent school system with really good teachers and I had facilities at school. So academia was the path for me. I was, I've always been a scholar. I've always loved learning. But learning was fun for me because I was good at it and I got good marks. And so people give me a little pat on the back. But if you love learning and you're struggling with the school system, then that love and that interest gets crushed. You don't get the space and the time to learn at your own pace. And so if you're teaching people in a medium where it's mostly entertainment, that's why you have to make yourself relatable and be like, look, we are not that different. And there are really cool things that I know that I'm sure you would love to hear about too. But if you come at it from that sort of elitism, I'm better because I have a PhD or uh, that, that, that just doesn't work. Think about it as if you're going down to the pub with your friends and just telling them about some cool stuff you learned today. That's it. When I was in my 20s, I used to be really into a type of swing dancing called the Lindy Hop. Mm-hmm. And I was so into it that I would take about three lessons a week. And then I also had a private lesson I would do. And then I'd go out at night and go dancing a couple of times a week. I mean, this was something I was passionate about. Occasionally, people from work would come out. And one of the places was this little Italian restaurant. And they'd come and sit and then watch. And they'd be like, wow. I mean, it's one of those things you see it and you go, this is incredible. I want to be a part of this, too. They would take one dance lesson out. Because what they didn't see, all they saw, they, they came out one night. They see me dancing. They see all these people dancing. They're amazing at what they do. And it's this incredible thing. I didn't get incredible 
the first time I took a dance lesson. And so I would try to tell them, okay, let me tell you how embarrassing it was as someone who sometimes gets insecure about one's own weight to have someone try to do a lift and like mm-hmm. I fall on the ground and so does the guy. Like like you are going to fall in, in the most wonderfully spectacular way in front of the most people possible. And that's how you're eventually going to, I was pretty good. Like I got pretty darn good, but there were lots of failures and lots of absolutely foolish things along the way. Are there any things for you that come up where you just think, wow, I had this spectacular failure that people don't see now because they see you as you've already come so far? Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, I think that one of my biggest fails in terms of science communication was the first time I probably talked about space. And it's no surprise. The first time I did it, I was overambitious and I lost people's attention. It was a school. It was school children. And I put way too much information. I was thinking, oh, I can totally teach them that stuff. I just need to explain what this word means at the beginning And then I can base my thing off that and whatever. You know, it was light years, the concept of light years. I explained where the light year is. And then I took them on a journey across the universe and showed them the scale of the universe. And the problem is that when you show the scale of the universe to people in terms of numbers, I'm a scientist. I've been working with numbers for years. So numbers, they they sink to me. They, They tell me something. I have an intuition for numbers, right? Especially for powers of 10. If you tell a child that something is <laughs> uh, 10,000 or a billion, yes. might as well be the same. Yes. It makes no difference to yes. them. They have no, like most people who don't work with these power, this gigantic powers of 10, they, they don't get the concept either. I mean, so it was a terrible idea. The only way to properly do this is to bring those scales back to earth with like, if the sun was a grain of sand, then, you know, the distance to this galaxy would be this, something like that, you know? You can only do it with analogies. And I didn't because I thought, no, it can work that way. And it didn't. And I felt, I felt the energy in the room, just kids just, just losing interest and not, and not being able to process all of that. And I'm going to be honest, I think if I'd done it with adults, it wouldn't have gone all that much better. And that taught me a lot. It taught me a lot about how much you can expect from a room of people who've never seen these things how much information you can throw at them before it stops sticking to the walls, basically. And I needed to fail in order to see, catch that limit. So yes, there's been a lot of failures. And even the the videos I still do nowadays, like they're edited. Mm -hmm. So yes, failure is just part of the process and it's an ongoing part of the process. It never really goes away. That's so much of what we don't see. I just saw your video and was instantly captivated. I didn't see all the takes that it took, all the editing. And there's that part of it in that moment. I don't know how how long do you think it took you to do that particular thing, the response to the young woman with the makeup? So it was a one minute video. I think that total, I spent about 45 minutes. Okay. Because I had to think about how I was going to approach her questions. I had taken notes down. I had to think about what drawing I was going to use to illustrate things, I had to shoot it, uh, make sure that it fits in one minute. And then I added a bunch of text over it at, at the right time and everything and, the, and that editing. So it took it, it, between 45 minutes and an hour to shoot a one minute video yeah. in response to that woman. I think that's really important for us to know. I wish we could see more of each other's failures to be able to recognize that this stuff is a lot harder than 
than sometimes people like you make it look for sure. Yeah. I'm not anymore. I'm okay. full-time research, so this is my... So tell us a little bit about what services do you belong to? How do you figure out how to engage? What made you decide to engage with this woman with the makeup store? Tell us a little bit about that part of your life. Okay, so the platforms that I like, um, mostly on Twitter, and that's kind of where my science communication started. And um, it's, it's hard to explain because I was not fully dedicated to science communication until relatively recently. Like I did do it, but I decided to do more of it because of the pandemic online, because I've been doing science communication for years, but typically I did it live. It's no longer possible. And as my platform has grown, it's been easier to reach uh, international communities and people that I wouldn't be able to, to, to reach otherwise. So that's that was part of the interest. So Twitter is great for really snappy pieces of information for news. It's great for news. You can make threads, signed threads do work, but people whose attention you already have, they will sit through a 32-part Twitter thread on black holes. But otherwise, <laughs> not really. It's great for memes as well, science memes. And there's a great academic community on Twitter. So that's a great place for that. I also started doing TikTok videos. Actually, my first TikTok video on science was in March of this year. Um, my platform on TikTok grew because of skating videos, not because of science, which is pretty freaking ironic. And then, and then I switched to uh, doing full-time um, science videos on there. And can we, go, work and can we go back for just a second? Did you say skating? Like I'm a I'm a roller derby girl. <laughs> I apparently did not properly prepare for this. So okay, roller derby. All right, roller derby is awesome. It's a great demonstration of angular momentum <laughs> and gravity. Anyways, so yeah, so I started making more uh, TikTok videos a few months back that were entirely dedicated to science in order to post them on on Twitter which started working. And then more people uh, did that too. So Kristen Banks, uh, Kristen Banks, sorry, I, I butchered her name, just that too, because it's a very short format. It's one minute, one minute video. So that's where you get that snappy content that people with short attention spans, me, uh, <laughs> can really easily digest. But it's also very challenging because you have a very small amount of time to explain complex concepts, right? But it's an interesting challenge and I really enjoy it. Now I've switched away from TikTok actually because of technical issues, repeated technical issues, like TikTok would desync my video completely with my sound. So it would look like my lips were moving independently of, of the words, which was very frustrating. And it started deleting some of my videos on the platform. So a whole bunch of reasons why TikTok was a fun platform to learn you know, how to be comfortable in front of the camera to explain concept, science concepts like that and learn a little bit of editing and what works and what doesn't. But now I've switched to making my own videos with an, a software, like an editing software on my mobile. So it's it's still not professional. Like it's literally a, an, an app. Uh, I'm taking videos with my phone that's like flipped like that on, on the stack of books uh, in front of a window, I'm sat on the floor <laughs> and everything. But at least the sound matches a little better with my lips. And so now I post them on YouTube instead. But that's still very new, um, the YouTube channel. But, th but the concept is the same. 
And the final medium that I have played with as well is of blogging and writing. Uh, most of my blogging is with academia, really, um, and advice and, and tips and experiences. Uh, but I've done a little bit of outreach with that. And that's really fun and more breathable because <laughs> you have more, you have as many words as you want. You can add as many pictures as you want. You have as much time as you need to explain these concepts. And the only challenge here is to know when to stop. I have another question because I saw you. I don't know where I saw you. It's one of those things where I where I just see it and cook and before I know it, I'm there. But you were doing streaming stuff. I don't I don't think oh. you were on Twitch, but but that's the oh, yeah. I am not on Twitch, but I do so I do stream once a week and every week there is a new technical challenge. <laughs> I've been doing it for two months now and I suck still. So once a week I stream for 20 minutes. Uh, it's called Astro Live. It's at 6.30 uh, East Standard Time on Sundays <laughs> and Monday mornings in New Zealand. And basically, I take not necessarily science news, but stuff that has come. So the way I describe it is uh, I take you on a 20-minute ride at the forefront of space science. And basically, I explain a brand new scientific publication. I break it down for the public. So when there's big news, like, for example, this week we'll talk about Venus, right? Mm. Because obviously we have to. I actually Sorry. know this story. Hooray! Yeah. <laughs> I'm so going to have to, either if I can join you or listen after the fact. Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah, so they, they are posted on, on, on YouTube after the fact, and they are streamed on, on Twitter as well. And so the, the concept, the idea is that even if there's no science news, I pick something that I read on what we call the archive. So the archive is where physicists post their papers, their new papers that are about to be published. And that's where we see all of our news. But it's way too complicated for the layperson to read any paper from the archive. It's for, it's, it's for specialists, right? But if there's a very new, interesting object or concept or, or, or piece of news that's on the archive and not on the BBC or something like that, then I can take that stuff and explain it to people in about 20 minutes and tell them why this paper is interesting for our field and use it kind of as a springboard to be like, oh, and this is, you know, what this means for this type of style, or, or here is uh, some basic stellar evolution or some basic understanding of the universe that you might not have already. When I was there, I noticed there were quite a few people commenting. Do you pay attention to the comments as they're coming in, or do you tend to do your 20 minutes and then kind of look at what came in during? Or is it depend? So I, I do it at the end because I don't get that all that many comments during. Um, but when I do, I don't want it to get too distracting. I yeah. did that in the first one. That was a mistake that mm -hmm. I did where I kept stopping and, and starting. And I was also looking at the number of people viewing and getting worried or or just jumpy when it jumped up and down, which is, again, random. So mm -hmm. don't look at it. Yeah. So I just tell people now to put their questions in the comments on Twitter during, because the problem is that there's also a delay between when I'm talking and when it's appearing on Twitter, like sometimes a 15-second delay. So I'll be like, hey, now time for questions, and then nothing. And so I've made that mistake where I've just missed entire comments because – People just hadn't heard that it was question time now. So people just write their questions as I go. And then at the end, I go through them. Oh, okay. Well, this is so fun. I, you're actually reminding me a little bit. It's almost like you've come full circle. You've been using your live 
experiences and some of those earlier failures. Yeah. And, and then, then you got to that short format and what you learned about that. And then kind of bringing it full circle to something that somewhat approximates the lines, yeah. but then I, it's I think different. it was the natural progression because I much prefer, which I know some people hate it, but I much prefer live. I'm much, I just, I'm an extroverted person. I like human contact. I like being social. I like interaction. And so being alone in my room and, and, and also there's an expect a higher expectation of edited videos. And I am a bit of a perfectionist and I know, and I've learned to let go of that, but it makes it way easier for me if it's like, you can't edit this. This is how it is going to be. So you don't even think about it. It's just, that's just how it is. And and I can, and then I can have fun. And so I do a lot of random lives on Twitter as well, because it's the pandemic and I'm lonely and we just talk about stuff and, and people then ask me science questions because, you know, you know, I'm a scientist and I can just answer them if they have them. And so we'll just talk about random science stuff and random academic stuff and random life stuff live, because this is where I have the most fun, really. There's so much we can learn from those in the moment. It's happening right now. Mm. And yet I wanted to go back to what you said earlier, because I just don't want it to get lost. You made a one minute video and it took you between 45 and 60 minutes. And you're already very good at what you do. So I think some people would take from that that the lesson they should take is, well, that would take way too long. So what I'm going to do instead is just record myself for 45 minutes unedited and provide <gasps> that to my students. So it takes the same amount of time, 45 minutes, except that it, I, I still remember giving, this is many moons ago, and I'm sure it didn't happen at my institution. I'm sure it was a different one where someone had given a phenomenal workshop on how to create more compelling, more engaging slide decks. And then yeah. the comment was, well, that would take me too long. Yeah, absolutely. And it's That's, like, well, um, you're asking then your students to have to, like, this, the burden of you don't want to spend the time to get it right. I you're know. shifting that exponentially on every student that you ever have. <laughs> the problem is capitalism <laughs> because there's way too much pressure put on yeah. um, teachers and lecturers uh, as far as output is concerned. And a lot of your lecturers will be people who, are researchers and to be relevant in the field, they need to keep producing and they need to keep writing. Well, and thank goodness for people like you that are given us other ways of looking at what it means to be a teacher. And I'm so glad to be connected with you. And this is the time in the show where we each get to give our recommendations. I think I'm going to recommend that video that I was mentioning earlier on the show. <laughs> I'm definitely going to have that as my recommendation where she shaves her head. I want to apologize to all of the teaching and higher ed listeners for ruining it for you because now you know what's going to happen, but you still, you still have to watch it. It'll be so good. And then the second thing I want to recommend is that there were a number of people talking about the essays called This I Believe Essays. Uh, Brian Dewsbury, who has been on the show previously, has talked about this. And um, there's a blog post I want to share because the author did such a great job of curating so many different kinds of the This I Believe. So the, the This I Believe essay is, is something that you can assign to your students. They have a whole curriculum around it. And I remember specifically when Brian Dewsbury was talking, it was kind of, you know, as a, as a STEM professor, 
how do we help students bring their values into science and be able to match up their values and what they're doing in science. And so she's got the, this other author of a blog post where she curated the different, this, I believe she talked about some literacy narratives, some, if we're focused on critical thinking and the humanities we work with, she had one by Bill Gates, Brian Grazer, Rick Moody, Errol Morris. And then if we want to expand the way students are thinking about their gaming narratives, and this was a whole world I know close to nothing about, but so, some interesting titles here. Jazz is the sound of God laughing. There's no such thing as too much barbecue. <laughs> I agree. Uh, <laughs> my legacy of playing games. Anyway, it's, it's a wonderful way of looking at how to use this essay writing format to help students express themselves in a lot of different contexts and a lot of different disciplines. So I'll be linking to that in the show notes, as well as the video of the wonderful teacher who uh, did such a memorable video. And now I get to pass it over to you, Eloise, for yours. So I have two recommendations as well. The first one is a Netflix series, which hopefully is also in, available in your countries. It's called Away. And it's, uh, I think, a 10-part series, uh, which I assume will get a second season, about a crew of astronauts that are going to Mars. They're the first crew to ever land on Mars and step on Mars. And I found it very interesting because it, it not only shows you the real dangers and, and troubles of space. I mean, you know, it's, it is a film. <laughs> it's a series. So it, it, it has its uh, limitations as far as uh, physically accurate. But, uh, but it, it shows you how dangerous and challenging space is on a physical level. But it also really looks at interpersonal relationships and how difficult it is to be stuck in a tin can with people for a several month journey to Mars and how difficult it is to be away from your family for years. And it also explores international relationships and how it works because obviously it's not, it's, it's, it's really good. It's not American centric. It's not just a bunch of Americans going to Mars. It's uh, uh, an American, a Russian English um, citizen and and Chinese citizen all going together, and there is some some uh, interesting ways in which uh, they show how you know different countries deal with space in a different way. So that's really good. Another recommendation is less entertainment based and more kind of spread awareness sort of thing. And uh, I like to spread awareness of uh, hyperventilation syndrome because I was diagnosed with it a couple of weeks ago when I was uh, feeling really, really unwell. I got uh, very odd symptoms of uh, drowsiness, dizziness. I couldn't work anymore. And it was narrowed down to what's called HVS, so hyperventilation syndrome, which is basically chronic hyperventilation. And it's something I'd never heard of before. I knew what hyperventilation is because, you know, I've had panic attacks. A lot of people have had panic attacks and know what it's like. But it's something that can be chronic and uh, where your body basically, because of stress factors, whether they are physical or, or mental, whatever it is, your body just doesn't breathe properly, kind of forgets how to breathe properly. And your brain just doesn't get oxygenated. Uh, just, it's very ironic because you breathe too much, your CO2 levels drop and your brain doesn't end up getting the oxygen that it needs. And that's why you feel dizzy, drowsy and, and you can't focus and all of that. So if you have a history of anxiety, and this is a very difficult and, and anxiety-inducing uh, time, it's a very stressful time, 
I highly recommend that you check out the symptom of, uh, symptoms of HVS just so you're aware. So if it starts happening to you, then you can catch it and, and take it early where you need to take breaks, you need to do breathing exercises, you know, learn how to be in tune with your body to really take care of your, of your body and your mind. So that's my message for the day. Well, I am both, I'm sorry that this happened to you, but I'm so also relieved because it sounds like this is something that is manageable. Am I interpreting that correctly? Yes, it's, it's completely manageable at this point uh, in, my, in my case. It's something that I can manage myself, but uh, yeah, just want people to be aware that it might affect them too. Well, now it's not just me who knows you, you know, a little bit of me and now the community of teaching in higher ed knows you. I'm so glad that they do. Um, some of them probably already know you from before their other interactions with you, but it's been a real honor to get to talk to you and so fun. And you're, you're just sharing so much of ways that we can all get better and thinking about how to be better teachers. And it kind of comes back to that practice that you talked about the failure, being ready to do that and trying different mediums. It's been so fun to talk to you today. Thanks so much, Bonnie. It was so much fun talking to you and very thought provoking. I have to say you triggered a few, a uh, few light bulb moments and a few memories there with your, with your questions. So thanks so much for having me here. Eloise, it was such a pleasure to get to talk with you today and You've really ignited my imagination so much about the ways to help to do the same for our students. Thank you for helping us think through ways that we can generate more curiosity with those already interested in our disciplines and those very far from those interest levels. Thanks to all of you for listening. If you would like to access the show notes for today's episode, those are at teachinginhighered.com slash 333. And if you would like to receive the semi-regular updates from Teaching in Higher Ed, go over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.